So we have some recliners at our house, uh, and I really like having recliners. Um, I didn't know that until I had recliners. But then the plastic handle that makes the couch recline, it broke. So I had half of a recliner. Um, and I just couldn't enjoy half of a recliner nearly as much as a full fully functional recliner. So I was in fix-it mode. And if you've known me for very long, you know that my fix-it mode is not very good. Um, uh, so for example, I was like, well, the plastic broke, so I need to put the plastic back together. How can I do that? They have glue that claims to put plastic back together. It doesn't work. <laughs> Don't believe them. And then I went to my default go-to solution, duct tape. But before I got to it, I was like, no, let's go to Home Depot, see if I can find something that, you know, it's a little bit more refined than duct tape. Uh, and then I, I found something. It's this mesh tape that hardens like steel after a while. So I was like, oh, it's like duct tape, but as strong as steel. Oh, it's going to work. Um, it didn't work. So then I learned from someone else that they actually sell these, so all recliner owners or future recliners owner out, out there, I'm, I'm about to save you $15 of mesh tape and hassle. Um, they sell these things for $10, that's the exact same part. You just, and it's really easy to take the old part out, put the new part in, and it works. Like even I could do it. Um, but. I share that story to just get us thinking, what do you do? What's your tendency when something is broken? Are you one of those people that's really quick to throw it out, uh, go buy a new one? Or are you like me? It's like, how can I jimmy rig this thing? How can I make it work? Or maybe uh, you're one of those people that's just like, uh, I'm going to keep this on hand. And one day I'm going to get around to fixing this later. You know, it's like I can live with it doesn't bring me quite as much enjoyment, but I can live with a half-functioning uh, recliner. Um, I say, what, however you tend to think about these things, it changes based on how much you value that which is broken. Make sense? So if you really value it, it's, it's higher priority. You want the best possible fix. If it's something that's like, well, I could live with or without it. It's not that big of a deal. You're going to choose something else. And these next three months, as we're going through Nehemiah, it's a story about how God's people went about restoring or fixing something that was broken. In fact, how they were restoring brokenness together. And if you've never heard this story before, I, I think you'll enjoy it. I really enjoy it. But if you have heard it before, uh, you're going to remember that mainly what we think of with Nehemiah is they're restoring this broken wall this wall that surrounded the city of Jerusalem, and they're trying to, to restore it together. But I have a spoiler alert for you, and I debated doing this if you've never heard the story, but it's too important, so here's the spoiler alert. The story about Nehemiah is about so much more than a wall. And I think it's really obvious because the wall is rebuilt in the end of chapter 6, but Nehemiah is 13 chapters long. There's something else that God is trying to restore. It's not about the wall. The wall matters, but it's not about the wall, ultimately. So Nehemiah is a story about restoring brokenness together. It's the people of God who were 
the broken thing. They, they were the broken ones. They were the ones needing the fixing. That's what needed to be restored. It's not the wall. It's the people of God. So let's jump in and read the word of the Lord this morning. Our passage is Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and who had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. He'd, he'd asked them, hey, how are the Jews doing? How's Jerusalem doing? And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity, they're in great distress. They're in reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Verse 4, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I'm praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses." Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They're your servants. They're the people for whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. So this is the beginning of the story of Nehemiah. That's how this story that is talking about restoring brokenness together starts. And our story, the, the kind of the, the, the mini story inside the bigger story, the one we're going to look at today, chapter one, it describes Nehemiah's response to brokenness. He asks how the people were and how the wall was. And then the rest of the chapter is about how he responds to this brokenness, this, this report of brokenness that his brother and those who came with him uh, told him about. And I think it's important at this point uh, to understand, like, we don't have walls around our cities today. Um, why did the wall matter? What did the wall mean? Um, th there was chaos in the city of Jerusalem if there was no strong wall, because what the wall meant was it was protection from the surrounding nations. The nations around Jerusalem, they were enemies. And so there were gates in the wall so people could come and go, but only people that you know and trust and not enemies could just walk in. So it, here's, here's kind of a modern day analogy for us to think about, like, why did the wall really matter to them? What did it mean? Um, how would you feel if the doors of your car didn't lock? So, you know, you're walking in your car, 
uh, late at night from a store. It's dark, and uh, um, you, you you get in your car, but the the doors don't lock. <laughs> uh, I think you'd be pretty motivated to turn it on and get going. Um, or if your windows were just stuck in the completely open position in your car, you're just exposed to the elements. Uh, so you drive here today, and you'd be kind of wet <laughs> uh, at the end of the drive. And when you got home, your doors, uh, they were off the hinges. So you just kind of leaned the door <laughs> up against the opening, and, uh, you know, little cats can run in, or mice, and, or people, you know, just kind of push the door over. And, I mean, uh, and by the way, you lived in a neighborhood where nobody liked you. <laughs> uh, they never have liked you. Um, so the wall kind of functioned as a deterrent to crime as well. So not only are your doors just leaning there, but there's no policemen, there's no military in your neighborhood. Uh, so how well do you feel like you'll sleep at night? Does that, does that make sense? Nobody likes you around and anybody can get in your house at any time. Uh, your car is open. I think that helps me realize why the people were in such great distress. Why, in verses 3, it said that the people are in great distress and reproach. Because they not only knew that they were weak and vulnerable, but they really didn't have any hope. Reproach isn't a word that we use a lot, but it's a word that basically means uh, it makes the failings of someone more apparent. So it's like, if here's something that... uh, Matt Chandler said is if, if on the screens, my thoughts were displayed all the time, like if you just looked at the screens and here I am talk, talking, if we walked into a room and the screens displayed the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart, nobody would want to be here. And if it was true, and if that's true for me, it's true for all of us. It's true for the people who aren't in church this morning. They walk into a room that displays the thoughts of their hearts on a screen Nobody would want to be here because it would be a reproach. It would make the failings of a person apparent. And I don't think we should miss this. This great distress, this reproach that came with the walls being destroyed. How did they get to this point? Who was responsible for this? Nehemiah actually tells us in his prayer, verses 6 through 8, they've been played out. He said, I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, God, and we've not kept your commandments or statutes or ordinances. Everything you told your servant Moses to command us, we didn't keep. But then he says, remember, remember the word you spoke. If, if, so it's being fulfilled here, what Moses said. If you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. That had happened, and it was the people's fault. Babylon came and conquered Jerusalem because they, God's people, were repeatedly unfaithful. They continually refused to obey, so nearly all of them were led into captivity. For 70 years, only a few people were left to farm the land, and honestly, you could argue which was the worst punishment, being led to a strange land for 70 years or being left, one of a few, just barely scraping by in what, sh- what used to be a successful and thriving homeland that you were proud of. So 70 years had passed, and God's word was true. During that time, Persia conquered Babylon, and at the end of 70 years, Zerubbabel and Ezra, they lead a remnant, they lead 
a group of people back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple and, and the, the story of Ezra covers that. That's the book right before Nehemiah. And this is the setting in which Nehemiah 1 happened. They kind of moved, so go back to your house with the door leaning up against the, the opening. You kind of moved, you moved back home, but your door was still there. Um, and, and you're not sleeping well at night because your life is totally open and exposed to the enemies and the threats surrounding you. And at this point, as I was thinking about the great distress that they were feeling, it, it reminded me that if there's someone here this morning who hasn't committed their life to Jesus, or if you're just not sure uh, where you stand with God, and if you feel like your life is in great distress before a holy God, if you feel like you have no hope, um, and there's this guilt before God, I just want you to know that's God's spirit loving you to let you know like that's true for all of us. Apart from Christ, there is no hope. So you have legitimate reason to feel this great distress, to be endlessly distressed. But if you turn away from living life your way, and if you pledge your allegiance to Jesus as king, not all of your trouble is going to go away, but you will have hope. And that'll make all the difference. Your greatest trouble will be taken care of. You might still feel weak and powerless, but you'll have power in him. We're all broken, but we have someone that is actually in the process of repairing us, restoring us into who we were made to be, who we all want to be. And if you're thinking, how can I really know that he's going to fix me for good? I'd point to the fact that he died in your place and then he rose from the dead. That's how we know that this restoration process is going to be completed because he completed it. He finished it. So if you're a Christian here, do you believe that the world needs this type of fixing, this type of restoration? If you do, I want us to look at, for the rest of our time, look at how Nehemiah responded. Take note of what he did. First, he grieved the plight of the people. He grieved their situation, but at the same time, he grieved his own sin. And we should also grieve our own sin. Nehemiah said, I have sinned along with the sons of Israel, along with our father's house. And we, we should grieve the sinfulness of sin in our life and in the, the sinfulness in the lives of those around us. It should really affect us. And you could say, Ben, I, I agree. I've tried that. But what about all those times that I just don't feel as bad as I should feel about the sin that I've committed? Well, how bad do you think you should feel? Like, legitimately, how bad do you think that we should feel? Biblically, we should feel hellishly bad. Like, I don't think that we'll ever feel as bad as we should feel. <laughs> uh, because each of us deserve the full wrath of God. And you're not going to feel that. That's, that's actually good news, that you don't feel as bad as you should feel. Now, if you're like, okay, Ben, that, you kind of tricked me. Um, uh, I didn't mean to trick you. I just, I just mean to put it in perspective. Like, we're not going to feel as bad as we should feel. So how, how can we go about navigating this, this, I don't feel much of anything. Like, sometimes sin, it doesn't even upset me in the least. Okay, yeah. 
that's a really good question that you're asking. I would say, and I believe the Bible says, feelings are tricky. The heart is deceitful. Sometimes feelings are true. They lead you into things that are true, and sometimes they're not. And so how can you know if you can trust what you're feeling? You have to have a standard of measurement. And you have to really know what you can trust ultimately, what you can trust objectively, what is true. Because no matter who you are, no matter what you claim to believe, we all live out of what we believe is true. It shapes our perspective, how we see life. And there is a right way to see life. There is truth. So for example, if I, if I could know, I, or I do know, <laughs> that putting gas in my car will keep it running. But if I feel one day, if I wake up and I'm just, I just feel like, I don't want to pay for gas. And I also feel like uh, water could legitimately be a substitute. If I put, if no matter how strongly I feel that, it's not true. No matter how much I feel that. So in thinking about our feelings, and the reason we're talking about this is Nehemiah felt very strongly. Mourned, fasted, wept for days. In thinking about our feelings, I really like this picture. I think this is the biblical approach to feelings. Um, there's a train here in this picture. Uh, it, it runs on facts. Our faith follows the facts. We put our faith in the facts of the gospel, who Jesus is, what he's done. And then our feelings follow. They're in the third place, third priority after our faith. Faith is choosing. Feelings are feeling. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong, sometimes they're helpful, sometimes they're not. They don't always align with the facts. The caboose, the, the feeling, should always be in third place. But hear me out. That doesn't mean you should be okay with losing the caboose. Just because, well, it's not as important. It still matters. Emotion matters still. And Nehemiah, he was full of feeling, but it was trustworthy feeling because, as you see in his prayer, He's putting his faith in the facts. God, this is who you are. This is what you said. This is what we did, but this is who you are, God. Or maybe this picture will be more helpful. It's like uh, uh, emotions as fire. So it says, and this is Thomas Brooks. He's an old dead guy, Puritan pastor. Um, He said, zeal, which is emotional energy. Zeal is like fire. In the chimney, it's one of the best servants, but out of the chimney... It's one of the worst masters. So what he's saying is emotion matters, but in its rightful place. It's like a fire. If you get comfortable with a fire in your living room, oh, there's a fire there. I got to go to work. Uh, Okay, (laughs) that's not going to end well. It's dangerous. But also, if if your fire is dim or if it's non-existent, your house is going to be chilly. What I mean by that is relationally, you're going to come across as cold and distant because feelings matter. And if your fire is misplaced, like on the floor, and it doesn't bother you, you could feel like it doesn't bother you, but it's, it, it's still dangerous. If your fire is rightly placed, if your emotions are placed in, in light of what you believe is true, then stoke that fire. I'd say feed that fire because it'll help you. It'll serve your life's purpose. That's what Nehemiah was doing. He, he was stoking this fire that I think he had built long ago. 
I don't think this was a reaction that just spontaneously happened. He knew God's word and he cared enough to ask about God's people. He was intentionally building this long before we read Nehemiah chapter 1. So if your feelings are biblically based, feel free to stoke that fire. Uh, A couple of months ago, uh, one of my friends was listening to some great sermons and they were making an impact on his life. And he asked me if that was okay to like do during his quiet time. And frankly, this was like more than he was doing for a quiet time before that. Does that make sense? So he's, he's listening to sermons part of his quiet time. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, that's okay. I said, are you getting any time in the word? He said, no. I said, well, the word would ultimately like use this, but ultimately like grow into that. Um, like, you know, it, it's not the healthiest to just rely on being fed by other people. Uh, and, and I stand by those words, like it's better, but here's, here's what I did. And well, let me just say, I've asked for forgiveness for this twice and I've been forgiven but I'm pretty sure what I did with trying to cast a vision for the future was while this early fire was getting started, I just took some water and poured on. That was not my intention, but what I did instead of casting a vision was I think I just sprinkled some water on a fire. (laughs) Um, And so if you have no fire today, if you examine your life and very little fire, just start with newspaper and small twigs. Like I'm serious. Start a, 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 a reading plan on your Bible app. Listen to it as you drive to work. Uh, or, if, or show up at a small group. Maybe that's the next step. If you've been showing up at a small group, then open up at a small group. Like, don't just take it in, but let them take you in. Your junk. Because we all have it. Build the fire with other people. Building a fire alone, I think, is dangerous. But if your fire is going, uh, throw a log in. You know, keep it going. Fan it into flame. Emotions matter, but they do not matter most. They matter. And we see Nehemiah's fire was well stoked because when he prayed, it was a prayer based on God's promises, who God was, what he said. And his feelings followed his thoughts, and he was thinking about what is true. So what that might look for us like today is uh, those people who are far from God, who have walked away, what's our heart's response to them? Like, how do we feel, how do we think about people who grew up in the church? A lot of people my age, they grew up in the church and they left. Uh, How do you feel about those type of people? Um, You could say, well, that's their choice. They're reaping what they're sowing. But it was also the Israelites' choice (laughs) to be unfaithful to God and um, to be in that, to get themselves in that rough spot. And uh, you might think, but man, it's, it's uncomfortable for me to even think about how to engage people who uh, are stuck in addictions or um, just aren't like me. So I'm just going to, you know, kind of carry on with my life and kind of ignore it. I'd, I'd really challenge you uh, to, to check your feelings against what's true. How does God look at those people? How does Jesus look at them? Look at these examples in Jesus' life. When he, saw, when he saw people, when he saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, hey, look, the harvest is great, the workers are few, so pray 
to the Lord of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into his fields. So Jesus saw people as an incredible opportunity. And he said, first, pray. <laughs> pray that God would do something through his people. And then also, like very similarly, Mark 6 uses this, a lot of the same words, but it's something else that Jesus said. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped out from the boat. He had compassion on them again because they were like sheep without a shepherd again. So what did Jesus do? He began teaching. And you might think, well, I don't have the gift of teaching, so I'm exempt. Uh, I don't think that's true at all. Uh, teaching does not mean lecturing people. It doesn't mean sit down and listen because I have something to show you. If you look at how Jesus taught, it was very relational. It was life on life. It was in the context of friendship. Of course, he had discourses as well. He was a teacher, but I'm saying there's more to teaching than being what we think of as a teacher, where y'all are sitting and I'm standing, or John is standing up in front of a classroom of kids. There's more to teaching. If you have compassion on people, you will be moved to teach them for their good. Here's another application. Uh, if you're a believer, and we talked about this last week, I really believe that you have a role to play in God's work of restoration. This is restoring brokenness together. Um, so I just encourage you to get time with other believers and to keep each other encouraged. Keep, keep vision and hope uh, alive in your life and, and give and receive grace from each other as we learn whether to fan the fire into flame or, or uh, hey, your fire is getting a little out of control. It's spilling into the living room floor. Uh, here's some water. <laughs> um, and I think the hardest and easiest at the same time application of this passage is pray. It's the hardest because prayer is just not natural for any of us to ask for help um, to talk to someone that we can't see with our eyes, it, it's hard for many of us. But I think it's also the easiest application because if you're on the toilet and you pray for 30 seconds, it counts. It counts. When Nehemiah was broken over the brokenness of God's people, he prayed. He prayed what he felt, but he also prayed what was true. And lastly, I just want you to see that Nehemiah's prayer, it, just, it wasn't just left there, but it was a prayer with a mind to act. If, you, if you'd never heard this passage before, you, you might read verse 10 where he says, he's praying, he says, make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Uh, who's that? Who, who does he need success and compassion before? And then he says, I was the cupbearer to the king. So the whole time that he's praying, he kind of has this mind like, God, you want me to do something. And I don't know what it is maybe, but you want me to do something as a result of praying. Oh yeah, I was a cupbearer to the king. So God, give me compassion before the king. And, and that, that's, that's an important part of this story being built. God answers that prayer and we'll see that next week. But I just want to close by saying in Nehemiah, even in chapter one, we already see the gospel. Because like Nehemiah, Christ left his high position in a kingly palace. In fact, he was the king, not just the cupbearer. He left that high position. He felt the sorrow of the people's plight. He was a man of sorrows. And he brought about redemption 
and restoration through a life filled of prayer and action. Prayer and action. So we're going to conclude by just giving you a time to pray. And the band will come up whenever they come up. But uh, let's just talk to God and, and let him help you. Ask him to help you feel the brokenness over sin. The sin in you and the sin around you. Now spend some time remembering what is true, that in Christ there is hope. He's alive. So there's hope for us to overcome sin, not perfectly, but for us to experience real change in Christ. So spend some time remembering the truth. And as you keep talking to God, uh, have a mind to act. Ask him, how do you want me to act on anything that he might prompt you to think about or to pray about?